Okay. Ready to get into God's Word, right? Amen. Let God speak here, right? Um, Jesus is uh, building His kingdom as we go through Luke, right? Building it up. And you can imagine Him being God could have had all sorts of different strategies to do things <laughs> than the way that He did it. You know, He could have just waved His hand and then just like that, a giant city with streets of gold could have appeared and you'd had the kingdom right there. He could have done that. He didn't do that. He could have sent forth His angels to broadcast the Gospel everywhere in every language. But He didn't do that. And He could have just written a message on the clouds. You know, put it up in the sky for everyone to read in their own language. He could have done it that way. But He didn't do that. So what did He do? He uses men, people, mankind, to take His Gospel to other people to tell that news. You know, that's like, boy, you know, was he, what was He thinking? Humanly, we could think that way, right? But this is His method uh, to use to start off, he uses a small handful of men who are untrained, they're uneducated, they haven't been to seminary, they're not any kind of scribes, they're not some kind of synagogue officials, they're just plain ordinary men who are called apostles by Jesus. Apostles means one who is sent. This in a, an extraordinary way. He didn't uh, immediately send them out, did He? Now, go. Uh, For like a year and a half here, He's been preaching the Gospel, teaching it, healing. They've been with Him. They haven't really done anything. Just kind of there, watching Him and and listening to what uh, He preaches. Now, it comes to be their turn. That's where we've come now in the book of Luke. To this chapter 9, and we know they had followed. It's on the job training. They're learning theology and they're learning ministry and preaching and the right way to do it. They had the teacher of teachers, didn't they? Um, it kind of comes to a time like a mother eagle pushing out her eaglets out of the nest so they'll fly, so they'll do it, right? And um, what he's going to do is going to send forth these strange bands of men um, take them out and get on the job training by just doing what he did. It's a short-term mission trip. It's just for a little bit here to start with. There will be another one. But here are 12 that who come back after doing that ministry. They're pretty excited. They've uh, done a great deal and uh, it is something that they'll never forget. It's amazing how people receive them. Probably a lot of people maybe did not receive them, rejected them. But uh, what an opportunity. So Jesus is in building a, a kingdom. What He does is delegate His power and His authority, turns it over to mankind. You know, and of course, when Jesus was here, we know that He uh, ascended. He left the earth bodily. Even though He's still with us, yet He's not here bodily. He's in heaven. But He leaves us to take forth the most precious truth that people can talk about in all the universe, through all time. And we are the ones who have this truth. His people, and he delegates that power and authority to start with with these men, which at least half of them are fishermen. That's what they did before they went fishing for men. And sometimes when you go fishing, your line yields a catch, and you go, "Wow!" A lot of times you come up with nothing, absolutely not a single one. But Jesus has them prepared for any kind of contingency. 
A lot of things are going to happen whenever they finally do it on their own when he's not here, but it's not on it on their own. They have been given power and authority. That was delegated from Jesus. It's his power. It's pretty amazing. All ministry, either back at that time or right on up to our time, is dealing with delegated authority. If you've trusted Christ, you have a mission. You are on a mission trip, on a mission journey for the rest of your life when you become a Christian. And that is using God's authority or His power when we speak His truth to people who need it. Well, uh, quite the wisdom here for Christ followers for all time, isn't it? Not only the apostles, but it also is for us. Let's uh, grab our Bibles and pick up uh, at chapter 9, start a new chapter today. Let's stand and let's read uh, what's about 11 verses, I do believe, on the power and authority that Jesus delegates. He called the twelve together, gave them power and authority over all the demons and to heal diseases. He sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to perform healing. And He said to them, Take nothing for your journey, neither a staff, nor a bag, nor bread, nor money. Do not even have two tunics apiece. Whatever house you enter, stay there until you leave that city. And as for those who do not receive you as you go out from that city, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. Departing, they began going throughout the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard of all that was happening, and he was greatly perplexed because it was said by some that John had risen from the dead, and by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen again. Herod said, I myself had John beheaded. But who is this man about whom I hear such things? And he kept trying to see him. When the apostles returned, they gave an account to him of all that they had done. Taking them with him, he withdrew by himself to a city called Bethsaida. But the crowds were aware of this, followed him and welcomed them. He began speaking to them about the kingdom of God curing those who had need of healing. Let's pray. Father, thank You for this story that is true. You actually gave to men power, authority to go deliver this message of the kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. How people get into it. How they are to live here. What they do to get salvation, Lord, is so key. And so that message has to be preached today. Help us be able to preach Your Word the way it was by Jesus, the apostles, all the way up to our time. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. So we have the Word of the Lord. Pretty precious stuff here because it's the Gospel, has to be taken out. Jesus does it in the way that was always planned. He always gets His way, doesn't He? It says He called the twelve together. This is the twelve apostles that He had picked, that He had chosen. And there they are. They're like interns. You know, they're, just, they're just learning. And it's now come to the point where they need to go out without Christ being with them and do what He did. Now, it's interesting that there's 12 apostles. Why 12? Well, it's not accident. There are 12 tribes of Israel. And we know that each one of these apostles are representing the 12 tribes because one day in the kingdom, who will be sitting on thrones? 12 apostles on the twelve thrones, someday judging the twelve tribes of Israel ahead of them, leading them, they representing represented what true Israelites were. 
true Israel is people who are Jews who are believers in Jesus Christ. That's true Israel. So that's what they are. They're representing here the king of the universe. This is a real crucial time. I mean, this is where you have a transition that is tremendously significant. Transition, it's kind of crossing, changing over a little bit, getting ready anyway. Uh, up to this time, he's done all the preaching, he's done all the teaching, he's done all the healing, casting out of demons and raising of the dead. He's done all that. Apostles haven't done that, he's done it. He answered all the questions. And you're somewhere around into about the first 18 months now of his ministry. It's about in the middle. Uh, He's going to be spending a little bit more time with the Gentiles. Most of the time has been with the Gentiles. And he's nearing the end of that. So he multiplies his ministry by 12. 12 times 1. He could cover a lot more ground and a lot more people. There are a lot of people that, that are lost that need the Gospel. And there are a lot of people that need to be healed. So therefore... Jesus spreads them out, takes it to the Gentiles. It's kind of a a last blitz or getting close to a last blitz that He will do and then He will set His face towards Jerusalem to which culminates in the crucifixion of Christ, His death, burial, resurrection, and the ascension. That's where all of this is going, isn't it? And so He knows exactly what He's doing as He gets these men ready after three years or so of ministry with Him. So He multiplies Himself, uses ordinary men, uses fishermen and whatever else the rest of them did. They're going to represent Him. They've been chosen. They were chosen earlier for salvation. Then later, not too much longer after that, they are chosen to follow Him. And now they are chosen to go out and do the exact same ministry, the same message that he did. Exactly. Exactly as he did. That's incredible. You know, they are the first line of preachers of the Gospel of Christ after Christ. These are the first line men. It's depending on them. (laughs) They better have some kind of power because these guys are not the guys that you would pick to represent the king of the universe. I'm not sure anybody would be available to do that. But Jesus has these ones in mind. He has the marching orders for them. And so, if they're going to do exactly what He did gives them orders and he says uh, he called the twelve together and gave them power and authority that is so key for all of this the ability to do what he said they have to have power and authority to carry this out how are they going to do it themselves they can't so they're given the same power you know what they were given the same miraculous power that Jesus had by the way I think it says in Matthew 10 8 that they could even raise the dead. I don't know how many times that happened. It just says that. That is only the power of Jesus. They can't do any of this healing. They can't do that, except it be by Christ. That's the kind of authority and power that they had. You know, you think about that and you go, whoa, they did the same things that Jesus did? Amazing. For a season, they did this. And it's like, okay, if Jesus is validating what He says in His preaching of the Gospel, how did He prove that what He said was true? He backed it up with supernatural miracles. How are they going to prove what they say, which is the same message that Jesus has, how are they going to prove it? Jesus is going to prove it through them by the same kind of healing power. 
the ability to do the exact same thing. They were sent out, says in another gospel, uh, two by two, in pairs. Two would go here, two would go here, other two, you know, six pairs going out around Galilee. They went together. And each one of them could preach this and do that uh, kind of ministry that he did. Now, the apostles did have a unique ministry and that is not duplicated in our ways. And and some of the instructions that he gives them as far as tunics and staffs and bags and that kind of thing is not necessarily something that we would follow today. Um, God can heal anybody at any time, but He chooses to do it in His timing and in His way and he can work that way. That's what he does. He still has that kind of power. But at this time, the apostles are setting forth, laying something down to validate what they have is true, what they say with their mouths. Later on, they complete the New Testament. They, many of them write either Gospels or Epistles. And that's the proof of what they say is true. It's been given by the, the Word of God. He, so there it is. Very unique, but there are principles that are meant for us today. It's not just for 2,000 years ago. It's that this applies to all believers of all times. We all have the same responsibility to preach, to teach the Gospel exactly the way that Jesus did it. Because the power and authority has been given to us. When I say preach, teach, I'm just saying just giving out the Gospel. You say, I'm no preacher. Yeah, but to preach really means to proclaim. You're proclaiming that there is what? Good news. You proclaim it. And sometimes you might have to give a little depth behind it and use some teaching in it. It is a a rather, I think a simple gospel that we preach or that we teach, that we share, but it's very profound, isn't it? And the depths we cannot even fathom. Um, Messages, though, are measured by the validity of what the New Testament says. We never veer off of what uh, Christ brought forth. So we have the same principles in that ministry. We didn't don't do exactly the way that the disciples did and not every one of us go out and heal everybody, right? And if we could, we'd go to all the hospitals and there wouldn't be anybody here that would be sick and such. But it obviously has uh, different than at that time. Jesus was healing so many people and now 12 of them are doing this. There's a lot of people that need healing. Did they all receive Christ? Not all, even though they even were healed. Uh, You'll notice that um, as far as most of Israel is concerned, they rejected the message of Christ. They turned on Him and the whole nation crucified Him. There were 120 people that got together after Christ had ascended into the heavens and were meeting in the upper room. So it started with 120 the church did as they prayed for the power of the Holy Spirit. That doesn't mean other people are not believers, but believe me, there were more unbelievers even though most of Israel had heard Jesus. God never calls His people to do anything without His power. Did you know that? So anything that you do in Christ's name you do not do it on your own. You can't. You don't have the power from heaven. So it's Him residing in us. And that is what's so uh, key. You know, He gave a final commission to the disciples as He was getting ready to ascend. It's that great commission. That they would receive power, Acts chapter 1, from the Holy Spirit. That's how we get the power. We have the same promise of God's Spirit. We have the same Gospel. We have the same Holy Spirit. The same power that those disciples did. Remember, they're just ordinary people. We have the same resource for God's power. 
So anyway, whatever it is, God will always provide the power to do it. Somebody say, I'm not qualified to do that. Yeah, but if you're a Christian, what do you have? God's power. Now, there are certain gifts that He gives to each individual. Everybody has gifts. That certain people can do things with that gift, with their gift that they have. Nobody else has, exactly. And so they use that in God's power. So you say, okay, what was the message that Jesus gave? Well, we know that John the Baptist said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And we can say, is that all He said? No. Read his sermons. Read the Sermon on the Mount. Who knows how much length there were to those sermons, messages that he gave. But in, in, in an outline form, what did he preach? Repent. Okay? Repent because they are sinners. That's where it starts with. They have to recognize that they are lost that they are sinners, God is holy, they're not, and there is judgment coming. So the sinners recognize there is judgment, eternal judgment, and then to preach faith in Christ for salvation. To repent, that means turning from your sins, confessing to Jesus Christ that He is Lord, that you're going to follow Him And that's what your life is about. So, 12 preachers are sent out to preach faith in Christ for salvation. Preaching the kingdom. The kingdom right now and the kingdom that is to come. And that's still the purpose of ministry. That's still what the church is commanded to do. The only problem is that is... A lot of our churches in our time have forgotten that do not know what they're supposed to be preaching. So they tell all sorts of neat little stories and jokes and give great illustrations and tell people how good they are. And yet the Gospel is to be preached the way that Christ preached it. It's not a social message that we give, is it? That's really not our aim, although we want the best for people who still to preach the Gospel. Uh, It's not a political message, even though there are things in politics that we stand for and for righteousness' sake. But that's not our message here. Uh, It's not a philanthropic message. You know, the love of mankind and... You know, wanting to do the best for them, even though that is part of what Christians are to be doing, that is not our message. And it's not even a moral message. And you think, oh, well, hey, that that has to be. Well, it is a part of Scripture and, of course, sanctification, but that's not the whole of the message. If we gave everything in, you've got to be this, you've got to do this, you can't do this, you can't do that, right? The can'ts and the do's. Um, although those are in Scripture, it's still just a little part that's involved in this Gospel message. It's a message of sin and salvation and forgiveness. We are forgiven. Here's how we were forgiven. Does it take a brain surgeon to be able to be able to tell that right and so that's what they did these fishermen and i think it's a lesson for all of us these guys who were untrained after a year and a half they've heard jesus preach given his power and authority they are able to tell what happened to them and also to tell what this kingdom is about here's how you enter it you confess your sins you repent you trust in christ for eternity so there would be the message and uh, they have the power to do this now in verse 2 and he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God we just explained that and to perform healing he relieved people's suffering even though it was a great sign of who he was he wasn't playing tricks was he but he demonstrated his power of the gospel in relieving people in their suffering. 
That's a kind of compassionate God that we have, right? So that's what was happening. You know, He could have done a myriad of kind of miracles. He could have just, you know, looked up to the sky. And all of a sudden, you've got some tremendous, awesome message up there. This is Jesus who is God. You know, He could have done that. He could have jumped from the temple and started flying. You know, start thinking of all the miracles that He could do. Show-off kind of things. You know, people go, wow, I want to see this. But that's not how He did His miracles. He did it for the people. He really cared about them. It wasn't, I'm going to really show who I am. Watch this. You know? He um, really cared about the people. All kinds of miracles could have happened. What's He do? He heals the sick, casts out the demons, raises the dead at people's most profound time of suffering even. And this was not only a demonstration of power, it's God's compassion. He's a compassionate Savior. Uh, Let's look at Luke 13.34. 1334. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together just as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you would not have it. That's a compassionate kind of God, isn't it? He's a Savior who really cared about them. You know, and... Of course, you know, we know he wept whenever Lazarus had died and he saw how, you know, it affected, uh, you know, the people around him. And this is the kind of God that we have in Christ. He's not one of those big show offs, but it's about that he cares for people. Well, you remember the miracle of the the wind and the sea that we read uh, in chapter 8? That was to relieve human suffering. The guys in the boat. <laughs> They'd never been in a storm this bad. It was a miracle of casting out the demons into the swine. What was that all about? Some kind of show there? No. It was to eliminate human suffering. Because if you remember the man who was filled with all those demons, the miracles of feeding the 5,000, which we will see later on, <clears throat> chapter 9. That was to eliminate the suffering of hunger pains for the day. (laughs) Just that day. They'd been out there in the wilds for quite some time listening to him preach. And he gives food to them, feeds everybody there. That shows how compassionate Jesus is. He's not one of those that is, uh, you know, an ogre. You know, God could be that way. But no. Very loving, very compassionate. He's a God of comfort. You see the God of comfort all throughout the Bible. Um, all over Psalms. Just dozens and dozens and millions of places it seems like where He talks about how He comforts them. I'm your shield. I'm your comforter. I'm your fortress. He cares. Look at Psalm 91. This is our God. Psalm 91, starting at verse 1. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High, the Most High God, will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, My refuge and My fortress, My God in whom I trust, for it is He who delivers you from the snare of the trapper, from the deadly pestilence, He will cover you with His pinions and under His wings you may seek refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and bulwark. He will not be afraid of the terror by night or of the arrow that flies by day, of the pestilence that stalks in darkness or of the destruction that lays waste at noon. A thousand may fall at your side and ten thousand at your right hand, but it shall not approach you. You will only look on with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked, for you have made the Lord my refuge, even the Most High your dwelling place. 
go on and on all the way through there. We see this God, this fortress, this refuge. It's amazing He's a God of comfort, isn't He? He reminds the people all the way through the Old Testament that He's a God of comfort. Even when He's brought them through tough judgment, tough tribulation, even for His people. He's a God of comfort. Now we look at verses 3-6 through of our Luke 9. And He gives some instructions in this training. He says uh, to them, Take nothing for your journey. Neither a staff, nor a bag, nor bread, nor money. Don't even have two tunics apiece. Whatever house you enter, stay there until you leave that city. And as for those who do not receive you, as you go out from that city, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. Departing, they began going throughout the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. So as he gets ready to send them out, tells them some things here that they need to know, some rules for the road. Take nothing for your journey, just whatever you've got on. Really, it's simply like this. You don't need much to take with you here. Now later on, as they are going to be sent out, they are told that they will have to take certain things with them. (laughs) Even take things for protection. But this first time, and that's why I say this is a unique thing, if everybody took these things literally... um, in this sense, especially in our times, we, you know, we don't normally uh, operate that way. Uh, like I say, the principles are definitely here. Um, if you're going up and down on rocky places and dirt roads, you might want to take a walking stick. It's helpful. Here he says, um, neither a staff nor a bag. Um, these guys are young guys. Uh, But you know what he's really saying? Travel light and keep your lodging basic. Don't worry about it. Uh, I'm going to take care of you. There are going to be people that bring food to you. You don't have to worry about taking extra food with you and then it rots. You know How are we going to keep it, right? He's just saying... Uh, what I want you to do is go out. Now, like I say, this is unique, and it, this is not necessarily for today, whereas, you know, you don't um, prepare yourself and take care of yourself. But God is saying, when you're out there on this mission trip, don't worry about it. Uh, about the tunic. They would take one tunic, but don't take a second one. If you have a staff, go ahead and take a staff, but don't take a second one. Here you can say, it looks like literally it's saying, don't even take a staff with you. What is he saying? You know, and in other other gospels, you will see where it seems like there's conflict. And really, what he's saying, you don't need a second one. You take one out there. You don't need a second one just in case your your staff breaks. You're, you're okay. You don't take any unnecessary thing. Just take what you have right here. So that's that's the. Uh, instructions that are very simple for this journey. Don't take excessive provisions. Don't take a great big bag and there you are. All your food is all loaded up and you think, well, they got to eat. How are they going to go out? They don't have McDonald's. I see a McDonald's cup right there. And it was like, well, I'm sure they just stopped and, and was able were able to get food at some cafe or something, right? No. <laughs> well, how do they get their food? You know, well, Jesus is going to take care of them. They're going to get their food. People are going to bring food to them. They don't even need to take money. Don't even take any money. I'll take care of you. What is He telling them? Don't worry about it. I've got this. Just go just the way you are. With the shirt on your back. Don't worry about gathering up some money and taking it with you because just in case... Excessive provisions. The the rabbinic law is um, that when a man entered the temple courts, he was to put off his staff and his shoes and his money belt as he would go in. Jesus sends these disciples to do a holy work and just being light in traveling. The uh, the Essenes had travel practices and they instructed. Uh, basically the same kind of way. It's not any unusual statement. And really what it's saying in all one package, 
Don't take extra stuff. Just trust in me. That's all I have to do here. Travel lightly. No cell phone. No cell phone. <laughs> oh, what would they do without that? <laughs> That's exactly, you know, if nothing else, you have your cell phone, right? Wherever you go. <laughs> but uh, they didn't have that. They didn't have much anything to go out on this particular trip that they're taking. <laughs> Don't even take your wallet. <laughs> it's kind of the idea. Um, you know what? They were not to go out having to try to raise money. All he wants to do is go out, preach, teach, heal. Don't worry about the other stuff. I'll take care of you. They were to depend upon the Lord for really everything. And really, He used people and their hospitality to bring them into their homes and feed them, to live there. During the day, they'd go out and preach and teach and heal. They didn't have to worry about the extra things there. So they were to limit what they were to take. So that should take care of the, uh, I guess you can say, the harmonistic problem as far as the other Gospels. Um, you know, whenever it says don't take one or don't take an, a second one, that's kind of the idea. You don't want to take extra baggage along. Um, I think just as you are, don't go to stop to load up with extra provisions. So in case you see that in other Gospels or you wonder why does he say it that way and then he says it over here in a different way. And uh, it's not a big deal. Of course, we know there was a time when he did send them out again. Um I think it was Daryl Bach that said, travel light, depend on God. That's a, that's a training that he gives them there, a principle. Uh, but there will be a time when they do go out by themselves, when Jesus is not around, He's in heaven. And there will be times where they really have next to nothing. And it looks like they're not going to be getting anything. And they are to what? Depend upon Him. And so, that's what it is. You know what? God takes care of us, doesn't He? Mm -hmm. All your needs are going to be met. Um, When it's time to stay somewhere, somebody will provide your lodging. I'll take care of you. You don't need a bag to put anything in. You're not going to accumulate anything. This is a part of the training. And we say, well, what's the lesson here for us? Trust Christ. Because the time will come where it is high tribulation on your soul, on your physical body. Who knows what kind of things could come your way in a negative sense. And there are going to be times when you trusted in me earlier that you'll have to trust in me again, maybe even more than before. Because we know they're going to run into some pretty heavy persecution when they take it out. Look at Matthew 6.25. Here's really, I think, the the great principle of it all. And we should live every day this way. For this reason, I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Food and clothing. Those are necessities. He says, don't worry. I'll take care of you. Now, does that mean we shouldn't... Well, I don't have to go and work then. God will take care of me. (laughs) Try that. (laughs) He takes care of us in giving us jobs or whatever it is that we need. He's always done... He hasn't let us down yet, has He? Yeah, but there's awful skimpy times I can remember. Yeah. And we can look back and we say, wow, God took care of me there even when I didn't even know it. Even when you were an unbeliever, did you know God was taking care of you? Not at the time. But you look back at it now and you're going, wow. So that's what he was doing, huh? What an amazing God. Leave it in my hands, God says. That's the lesson. You know, I think there's a lesson here in being contented. That, I think, is probably the biggest way, or one of the biggest ways to glorify God. Just to be contented in the position that God has given us. 
to, you know, they were to stay in one place. Now they would be invited by people into a house, and they go, "Oh, well, thank you." The house is small; it's, it's meager there. You know, it's not the best place, but it's it's okay. You know, it's clean, kind. And somebody else would come along. Hey, listen, how would you like to stay with us for the next couple of weeks? And they have a grand old castle, <laughs> huge place. It's like a mansion. And I mean, everything is really just perfect there. Ooh, that'd be awful tempting, wouldn't it? He says, stay where you're at. Don't go around from one place to another until it's time that you're to move on to another area. Stay right there. Yeah, but boy, I'd sure love to be at that house. That guy invited me. Don't do that. How would that look is to the person that has just ask you into the house that they're at. And so that's why he would say this here in, in our Luke passage that um, whatever house you enter, verse 4, stay there until you leave that city. Just stay there. But there, uh, So it, it's called contented. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 8. You know, God has called us to be His people and He, he gives us brains to, to use you know, of how we are to handle money and you know what we're to do. But He says in 1 Timothy 6.8, if we have food and covering, lodging, clothes, that kind of thing, with these we shall be content. There he takes it down to the very bottom line, doesn't he? Be content. If you have food, if you have clothing, a place to live. We'd always like to be dragging out for. And granted, there there is some wisdom in the sense that, yeah, if there is an opportunity or something comes along to improve our condition and position, it's there. We'll just take it as, oh, well, here's what God put forth. Well, thank you, Lord. But that's really what Thanksgiving is about. Just giving thanks to God for what He's done. Boy, simple, basic theology there. Um, we can trust Him to provide our needs. I think most of us, including me and probably all of you really, have a lot of stuff. Probably more stuff than we even need. But it can hinder us. Sometimes it's extra baggage, you know, and sometimes we live for that stuff. But if all of our stuff was taken from us, all of our stuff, we're stuff people, and that's the generation we live in. Thankful for that stuff. It helps us live a life here probably a lot easier than other generations. Kind of neat. It's cool. That's okay, you know. But what would happen if we lost all our stuff? would we still be able to praise God? That's the idea. It's contented whether we are rich. Paul said, I know what it's like to be rich. I know what it's like to be poor. I would much rather be rich. But at the same time, if I'm poor, I'm trusting in God. If I'm rich, I still have to be trusting in God. So it goes. The idea is, would we still be praising God? God? Would we be glorifying Him? Why do we exist? The chief end of man, that's our main purpose, is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. God is most glorified when we are most satisfied in Him. Not our stuff, but satisfied in Him. Not us, but we're satisfied in Him. Now that doesn't mean to say, oh, well, you know, I'm satisfied where I'm at in my walk with the Lord. I don't need to get any better. This is this is cool. I'm content. Right? No, we should be striving to be more like Christ, shouldn't we? But as for things and every our whole, even our position that we're in in life and what we're going through, be content. God is most glorified. The best way we can glorify Him is what? To be satisfied 
in Him. To be content. You mean that's the best way we can glorify Him? Yeah. Because all we're doing is trusting in Him. So I thought, let's go out and witness. That's okay. That's good. That's what we're supposed to do. But it's still behind that. If we're satisfied in Him, that will happen. Things will happen. Anyway, He kind of warns them about some people are not going to receive them too good. Because that's already happened to Him. And if they don't like Jesus, they're not going to like the people who are carrying His message. So He tells them this. Verse 5, And as for those who do not receive you as you go out from that city, shake the dust off your feet in a testimony against them. Now do we do that today? Remember they wore sandals, you know. But it was definitely a, a, a symbol of a sign of judgment really from God. If people do not want that message, they, who knows, might, it, it might be the last time that they ever hear truth. We don't know about that. But Jesus always said some things throughout the Gospels, and throughout the Epistles, we hear some things that are rather hard. 1 Corinthians 16.22 If anyone does not love the Lord, he is to be accursed. Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus. If one doesn't love the Lord, what's going to happen? They're going to be accursed. Or if I say this word, be careful, but I'm saying it in a biblical way, accursed there means to be damned. And that is a word that you don't throw around loosely. But... God will judge, He will condemn, or He will damn people for eternity. And that's what it is. We don't damn anybody. We don't accurse anybody, do we? That's God's being the judge who does that. But if they don't love the Lord, eventually they will be judged. That's the idea. That's a hard statement, isn't it? But it's true. There is a heaven. There is a hell. And no matter what theologian, even some of the good ones have come up with the fact that, yeah, there's a hell, but it is immediately the fire is put out and the people for the rest of eternity are are out of it. They don't even exist anymore. That would be, you know, in our own thoughts, we're thinking, well, that would be the really the most compassionate way to do it, wouldn't it? But no, uh, it's His choice to provide heaven And also there is a hell that was provided for the demons. But mankind, for the most part, do not love the Lord. And right at the end of Corinthians, it's amazing that he says that. And he's talking about a final judgment. And he says Maranatha, and that's why that is. It's uh, um, eagerness for the Lord returning. But even when we say that, it's like... Oh, Lord, give mercy upon the lost. Right? The experience of Paul, uh, we see in Acts 13, over and over, you see quite an experience that he had as he carried out the Gospel, just like the apostles did before him. Verse 50 of Acts 13 But the Jews incited the devout women of prominence and the leading men of the city and instigated a persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust of their feet in protest against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were continually filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. There it is. They were chased out of the city. How humiliating. But what did they do? They shook off the dust of their feet. And what they were more or less saying to that particular uh, village, for instance, that it's just like, okay, this is to pagan Gentiles. We're leaving this, and here it is. Judgment is coming upon them. Uh, Whenever an Israelite left the land and went to another nation whenever they traveled abroad, whenever they returned, you know what they would do? They would stop at the borders 
and shake the Gentiles' dust from their clothes. Because as they went back into their land, they wanted to be clean. Uh, The idea here is that anyone who didn't accept the message of the apostles, as He tells them here, Jesus tells them, are to be considered on the same level as a pagan Gentile. See, they're going to the Jews and Jews only. Jesus instructs them. That's who you go to first at this time in chapter 9 of Luke. So He says, okay, when you go to the Jews and they don't uh, accept that message, He says, shake off the dust from your shoes. They're just like pagan Gentiles. So when that particular phrase was said, they knew that He was taking from what the custom was, only this time it's dealing with the Gospel. Um, A whole village could be rejected in, in that sense. So it was warning the city as they would shake off the dust as they spoke for God. So that's what Jesus says. It's painfully done. It's not with a joy that, that anyone would take that. Um, who knows? Maybe God will come back and give them the Gospel again and again and again. Or it might be their last time. We don't know. But there's a discernment that they are to have that we're to have, knowing full well that you know, Christians are not treated royally all across the world. And if you look in Matthew chapter 7, verse 6, it talks about discernment. Do not give what is holy to dogs. Do not throw your pearls before swine. Or they will trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Here's where discernment comes. You can get the gospel out and you can see how it's responded to and if people are making fun of it, um, they start terrorizing you and and the, the God of this message. Move on. Don't try to beat it into their heads. It's only going to be the Holy Spirit that's going to Get to them anyway. We can't get into their heads and make them believe, can we? So he says, you know, treat them as dogs. Treat them as Gentiles. Don't take what is the most precious things of the kingdom and throw it out before them. Like We have some great doctrines that we all treasure, but you don't start giving those out to people until we see that they're responding to it in a positive way. You can say, okay, I see right now that this is not the best time to talk. We'll move on. Right? And so so it is there that uh, given in Matthew. Um, Matthew 13.45 Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls. There are pearls, there are precious jewels, there are precious truths in the kingdom of God. And that's what we want, right? We want to give those out, but there are the pigs, the swine, the dogs who don't want it. So you don't continue to give it out. It's precious, move on. So, there's a guy here that gets right into this chapter. It seems kind of offbeat for a moment. In in our uh, Luke 9, uh, it says in verse 6, departing, they began going throughout the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. So are they doing what Jesus did? That sounds familiar. All through Luke, we've seen this. Preaches the gospel, He teaches it, He heals. They're doing it. And they're doing it everywhere. All around Galilee. There's 12 of them. Boy, the news is really getting out now because it's going out swifter, isn't it? You have more people. Greater works you shall do than me. Jesus actually said it. How can we do greater works? Simply for the fact that we can go cover the world. Whereas He, whenever He was here by Himself, could go at one place at one time. But using the body of Christ, we can go to every place at any time. The body Greater works we shall do. You see, it's not that we were going to do greater miracles. Some take that. Um, my, he did. He did all the miracles you can think of. You know, raising the dead and such. 
And so they're doing this. And then you run into this thing. Is What is this? It's like, oh, interruption. But it actually goes along with what we're talking about. Discerning. There's a guy here by the name of Herod. He heard what was happening. Oh, it's really getting around. He's been hearing it and now it's spreading everywhere. And he was greatly perplexed. He is really confused. Because it was said by some that John had risen from the dead. Now you get that. You don't really need that explained, do you? He's the one that killed John the Baptist. He's the one that had him beheaded as he got into a position that he didn't want to cause any kind of problem amongst uh, his so-called wife and so-called daughter, I guess. Um, He condemned John the Baptist to death. He thought that that was the end of John the Baptist. It's really only the beginning because these guys are out there preaching like John the Baptist did. They're doing more than he did. He didn't heal. These guys are. Conflicting stories are being circulated all around the land. And, and, and we see it here. Um, some thought that uh, Elijah had appeared. Others said one of the prophets had risen again. And Herod is thinking, this is John the Baptist. This is the one that I killed. I know I killed him. I saw his head. So he's troubled. <laughs> I guess... All the rumors are going around and man, he is greatly perplexed. He is really upset. You want to know why? Because he has a guilty conscience. Because he he liked to listen to John the Baptist. He had some amazing things to say. He just didn't want to adjust his life to it. Intellectually, he says, yeah, that's, that's pretty cool. That's right, that's right. But when it came to the time whenever he was to change his own life and his lifestyle... And then, you know, of course, living with the this lady and all that he had done and all this stuff, you know, he was very superstitious. There was a proverb, Proverbs twenty-eight, one says, "The wicked flee when no one is pursuing." <laughs> they get guilty. He feared that John the Baptist might be here to haunt him. Well, in Matthew fourteen, one. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the news about Jesus and said to his servants, I'll tell you who this is. This is John the Baptist. He is risen from the dead. And that is why miraculous powers are at work in him. Well, you know, John the Baptist didn't raise at that time, and I'm glad, I'm sure he's glad that he didn't. You know, he's with the Lord. But anyway, he thinks he's risen from the dead. He's come back to haunt him. And his powers are at work in him. So, he thinks Jesus is John the Baptist. And all the messengers are out there that are giving that truth. It's it's all coming from John the Baptist. Look at 13 of Luke. I believe it is. Yeah, 31. This is interesting. Just at that time, Pharisees approached saying to him, speaking to Jesus, Pharisees are telling Jesus what to do here. He says, go away, leave here, for Herod wants to kill you. <laughs> They're protecting him. Hey, Herod's going to kill you. You better get out of here. Now, what do you think their motive is? Do you think they're really wanting to protect Jesus? I don't think they care about that. I think they would like to kill him themselves, but they would like for him to leave the Galilee area, here the Tetrarch's land and such, and go to Judah where they can arrest him and take him in and then crucify him. That's their idea. So they said, go away, leave here for Herod wants to kill you. Of course, Jesus said to them, go and tell that fox. That wise dude. Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I reach my goal. Nevertheless, I must journey on today and tomorrow and the next day, for it cannot be that a prophet would perish outside of Jerusalem. So there he's on his way to Jerusalem. That's where everything's going to happen. Go and tell that fox. Been out there doing all these things. Yeah, who is that, right? 
Who is Jesus? Well, the people who are blind to the truth, the ones who are interested, does interest save you? No. There are a lot of people interested in Christianity. There are a lot of people who are really inquisitive about Christianity. You know, they can read and they can study. They know a lot up here, but they don't know Jesus Christ. They're perplexed. This man right here is just absolutely guilty. He knows he's guilty, but he's interested in what's going on. And he's scared to death about it. He's blind to the truth. So you see, some or most do not want the truth of the gospel. And that's really what we're getting here in, in Luke in the sense of what's going on. As you see that Herod comes up in this story while the apostles are out giving the gospel out. Because the word is just circulating everywhere. And this certainly is coming from somebody blind to the truth of Christ of who as who it was. John the Baptist was pointing to Christ. Jesus was really pointing to Himself and the kingdom. There are people, though, who seek the truth. Some do want the truth. That's where the Gospel is going to go. So we look here and we see uh, you're past the, John, or the Herod now. He kept trying to see this Jesus, really. He wants to see Jesus. And then verse 10, it wraps up here. When the apostles returned. So there it is. There's Herod the Tetrarch in there. And I think the idea is the impact that they made. They preached just like Jesus. They healed just like Jesus. They returned. They give an account to Him of all they had done. Don't you think that they came back with absolute joy? Taking them with him, he withdrew by himself to a city called Bethsaida. So what they do, what a wonderful time. They've been ministering and now they're encouraged. And they tell him all the things that God had accomplished through them. Have you ever seen it whenever you've been able to minister and you've seen some results? Or something happens, somebody else is interested in in the Bible and the reading or somebody trusted in Christ and you go and tell others. And you're encouraged by that. They're encouraged. And we come to church here, we're encouraging each other. Here's how God is working over here. Here's what He's doing. And here's what He's done in my life. Here's what He's done in your life. And, right? And we're excited about that. That's what God wants us to do. That is called being built up. Here's the word. Get it into our minds. Also, when we walk it and we do it, and God accomplishes something through us. You say, wow, it really does work. Sometimes, though, I can really get turned down. seems like most of the time that happens. People don't want to hear it. And we've already been forewarned. Yeah, that's, for the most part, it's what's going to happen. But believe me, they had a lot of things to report. They came back together, shared, they worshipped, encouraged the continuing work. And you know what? I think this tells us a lot about Jesus sending forth the apostles. I don't think it was so much about the benefit of the ministry as it was for their benefit. We really are excited and encouraged when God is working through His church And uh, this was part of their training. They needed this at this time. They needed this for their growth. When you do the work of ministry, it's not only helping those to whom you minister. You know who it really helps also? Yourself. You get excited because, yeah, you got to help somebody or say something or do something, no matter how small it is. And you know, that will take away depression and the blues and everything about it sometimes or whatever else is alien when you have done something for somebody else. And guess who? It benefits not only them, but you. And that's how God, you know, it's not, God could do things that He doesn't need us. 
He could do it all. But instead, He chooses to use us to bless others and that we get blessed ourselves. And that's His business. And that's what He sends us out for in whatever which way you do and whatever you mean. You might have a prayer ministry and where you just pray to the Lord for the people in the church and the ailing people. You know what? You've just ministered. And it goes on and on. Or you just have somebody that you, you take care of. They have some needs and you go and fix something for them. Did you know that that is ministry? God has gifted you in, in different ways, so many ways. And just being around, not even being able to sometimes even say anything, just being there. Somebody says, hey, thank you a lot for coming over. You know, I appreciate it. Just a little bit. It shows care. He said, I didn't do anything. Yeah, but the Lord did through through you. So it's amazing. Some of the least little things that you wouldn't even count as ministry. We think of ministry as taking the Bible and you know blowing them away through Bible truths. And that's really what is the great thing to do. And that's what we do. But really it's just being there for people. We're there. And not in a judgmental way. We're there to edify, right? Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this truth. The principles that are given here that start with the disciples and it worked. Because the church is still here, Lord. After 2,000 years, it still exists and it still is to preach the very same message that You gave. We give You all the glory. Thank You for impressing upon You how valuable Your treasures, Your truth, Your pearls are May we live by these truths, living it out and giving it all for Your glory. In Jesus' name, Amen.